Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, did you know that someone's eyes are always on you? That's a creepy way to start a sermon, right? Someone's always watching. In a 2018 issue of National Geographic, one writer talked about the reality that someone's eyes actually are always on you. And he's talking in terms of uh, technological innovations. In the article that was titled, They Are Watching You and Everything Else on the Planet, the author detailed some of the side effects of this rapidly growing and increasing technology uh, that we have. So in 1949, an American company released the first uh, commercially available uh, CCTV system. Two years after that, in 1951, Kodak introduced its first portable movie camera. And now, today, trillions of images and videos are stored uh, somewhere on the internet um, every single year. It's, it's an insane amount. And there, then you add to that the couple hundred million surveillance cameras that people buy every year for the houses, then the millions of cameras that are on ATMs, and then the article went on to further prove the point that someone is always watching us, and he said this in the article. He said, tens of thousands of cameras known as automatic number plate recognition devices hover over our roadways to catch speeding motorists or suspected criminals. Proliferating as well are personal monitoring devices, dash cams, helmet cameras, video doorbells, and there are billions of images of unsuspecting citizens captured by facial recognition technology and stored in law enforcement and private sector databases over which our control is practically non-existent. And there's even more. Now we have millions of drones that are sold each year to hobbyists and businesses. And then we have the governments that have their own spy drones flying in the air. And then we have thousands of satellites that are hovering our planet and can zoom in so close on a license plate. Now the reality is that none of us want to be watched this kind of way. If you do, you're weird. <laughs> you know, this is creepy. It's menacing, right? It's, it's, it's an invasion of privacy. We appreciate privacy. We appreciate being able to escape from people. We appreciate not having our every move watched. But ultimately, there is one we can never escape from. See, unlike the impersonal and menacing watching that was described in the article, Scripture describes a personal, loving Father who is everywhere present, at all times, one who is always close to his children. Listen to some of the scriptures that talk about this. Psalm 139, the, the psalmist writes this. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Then you see in Jeremiah 23, God says this, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Then you read in Deuteronomy, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. See, Scripture paints this beautiful picture of God's omnipresence. Now, omnipresence, that's just that fancy theological word that we use to refer to the fact that God is perfectly present everywhere at all times. Omni meaning all. Um, so, so his omnipresence. And now, though his omnipresence might be a scary thought to people who are far from God, those of us who are his children should delight in the fact that God is always near. God is always watching. God is always close to us. And as we turn then to Genesis chapter 39 this morning, I'm convinced that it was this very fact of God's closeness, his nearness, that enabled Joseph to thrive in every single circumstance that he was thrown into. So we're continuing our study through the life of Joseph. And like I said, we're looking at Genesis chapter 39. Now, uh, Joseph's uh, story began in chapter 37. But uh, in this chapter, in 39, there's a key phrase that you see a couple times in the beginning of the chapter and a couple times at the end of the chapter. And, and Moses, when he was writing Genesis, he intentionally did this. He put the, these phrases at the beginning and these phrases at the end to make the point that this is what this whole chapter is about. Everything that's in the middle, everything that's said in the beginning and the end has to do with these phrases. And the phrase that you see four different times in Genesis 39 is this phrase. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. See, through all of the ups and downs described in the events in this chapter, which take place over the course of uh, of a handful of years, Joseph was able to succeed in all of it, not because of any good thing that was inherent in himself. He was able to succeed in all of it because God was with him. God was always close to Joseph. And this chapter reminds us that God is always close to his children, including you and me. God is always close to his children. So we're going to walk through Joseph's story in this chapter. Then we're going to circle back and make a couple points of application. Now, Genesis 39, like I said, it continues his story that began in chapter 37. And we're skipping over chapter 38 um, because it really has nothing to do with Joseph. And we're talking about the life of Joseph and Plus, chapter 38 is a kind of creepy chapter, so you can read that on your, on your own. Um, but it has nothing immediately to do with Joseph. It actually just further uh, highlights um, really how gross and dysfunctional his family truly was. Um, but 37, Genesis 37, introduced us to 17-year-old Joseph, right? And who was Joseph? Joseph was uh, one of Jacob's 12 sons. He was uh, the favored, the favorite son of Jacob, um, and uh, Jacob didn't try hiding the fact that Joseph was his favorite. He, he, he lavished on him this uh, elaborate, expensive tunic that was a symbol of royalty and, and authority and nobility. Um, and then uh, the brothers obviously knew all this, so they couldn't stand him. And then to make matters worse, Joseph has a couple dreams, and then he goes and tells his brothers and his family the dreams, and the dreams basically were, hey, I had these dreams, and you're all bowing down to me. Obviously, his brothers didn't take too kindly to that to the point of, nearly wanting to kill him. 
But if you remember from last week's sermon, uh, Pastor James preached that at the end of the sermon, you see Judah suggesting that they instead sell Joseph to a caravan, to a group of slave traders that were headed for Egypt. So this is where we pick up the story then in chapter 39, verse 1. It says this, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So Joseph is now in Egypt. He's far from home. He's in a strange culture, speaks an unknown language, totally, totally not in his element, totally confused, uh, probably really, really scared and sad. His father Jacob thinks he's dead. Um, He's dead functionally to his brothers. His dreams of grandeur have now shattered, and he's nothing more now than a common slave. Now, we're told that Joseph was purchased by Potiphar. Potiphar here is described as the captain of the guard. Now, this group was uh, a hardened and elite group of soldiers. Uh, They were actually the ones responsible uh, for the executions. Um, So Potiphar was likely the the, the leader, um, the the boss of all the executioners. So he's like the chief executioner. So he's not someone you want to fool around with. Yet Joseph, in his humiliated enslavement, he not only adjusts to this really difficult situation, but he flourishes in it. And for one major reason. See, the, re- the reason emerges from that beautiful phrase that we read about that, that, that we're going to see now a few times. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now look at where it says the Lord there. That's all capital. Um, when you see that in the Old Testament, you have when you see capital L with lowercase O-R-D, that's just referring to the term Lord, which might mean master um, or something. But when you see Lord, all caps, that's referring to the, the covenant uh, Lord, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh. Um, they didn't say, wouldn't say Yahweh, so that's how they would write it. They'd write it that way. So, so Lord, when you see that, he's talking about the Lord, Yahweh. So when his brothers threw him in a pit, who was there with Joseph? The Lord, right? The Lord was with Joseph. When they sold him to some slave traders for uh, a few silver coins, who was with him? The Lord was with him. When he found himself in a strange land with strange people in a strange language, ripped away from everything he knew, everyone he loved, he wasn't alone. The Lord was with him. I love the way one commentator put it. He said this, God's presence neither localized geographically nor dramatic or spectacular, is an unobtrusive, working-behind-the-scenes kind of presence. See, God was with Joseph, and I'm convinced that Joseph was aware of this truth, that God was always with him. And because the Lord, Yahweh, was with Joseph, we're told that Joseph became a successful man in everything that he did while working as one of, one of Potiphar's slaves. Because God was with him and because God was the one working behind the scenes to ensure Joseph's success, he soon begins to rise in status. Look at verse three. It says, his master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. See, this polytheistic pagan Potiphar recognizes in Joseph that he serves the one true God, the Lord, Yahweh. He saw in Joseph the the outworking uh, of Joseph's faith in God. Joseph's faith manifested itself in his life and in his work, everything he put his hands to. 
And what Potiphar sees then uh, generates trust and confidence in Joseph. So Potiphar increases Joseph's responsibilities and he makes him overseer of the house. Look at verse four. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he, Potiphar, made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So Joseph is promoted to the position of uh, essentially chief palace administrator. Potiphar puts him in charge of everything in his household, everything that Potiphar possessed he entrusted to Joseph's care. And this must have taken many years because Joseph goes from a common slave probably to someone outside working in the fields, then to an indoor slave, and now he's rising in status and he's running the house of the top military leader in Egypt. And it gets even better for Potiphar. Look at verse 5. It says, from the time that he, Potiphar, made Joseph overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. See, for the sake of Joseph, God blesses Potiphar. Joseph was an heir to the covenant promises that God made to Abraham a couple hundred years before this, when he told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God is simply remaining faithful to the promises that he made, and he's taking care of his child in an otherwise terrifying situation. And then you get to this little note, the first half of verse 6, I love this. It says, so he... Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. See, Joseph was so diligent and so set on honoring God with his work that God caused everything to prosper under Joseph's care. So thorough and meticulous was Joseph's oversight that the only thing Potiphar needed to worry about on a daily basis was what's for dinner. That's it. He's a, a top military leader, and he's not stressed about any of that. All his worry is, oh, well, what's for dinner? I, that's it. Can you imagine that being your only thing that you're worried about on a daily basis? I mean, I think about that 24 hours a day, but still. It really seems like things are starting to look up for Joseph. He toiled as a slave for years, but he remained faithful to God, and God remained faithful and, and near to him. So Joseph worked for Potiphar, not as if he was bitter and in an unfair situation, he worked for Potiphar as if he was working for the Lord. And Potiphar took notice then of the way that God caused Joseph to flourish and he promoted him. But just as things start looking up for this down on his luck, Joseph, things take a turn for the worse. Look at the next uh, second half of verse six into seven. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, the way that's actually written in Hebrew, the, what she's actually saying there is, Joseph, sex, now. It's, it's a command. She's commanding him because she is one in authority because of who her husband is. So she's commanding Joseph to sleep with her. Now, we're told here that Joseph was attractive, right? He, he said, when it says he's handsome in form, it's talking uh, about um, his, his shape. He probably had a, an athletic build. Uh, he, he was very attractive, handsome man. That, the Bible says that about only about a handful of people. So, 
Everything Potiphar had, he put under Joseph's care. He He entrusted Joseph with everything except, of course, his own wife. Right? And then on the heels of his many successes, Potiphar's wife begins to lust after attractive Joseph. And then she eventually confronts him and invites him to her bed. And though it's more than an invitation, like I said, it's, it's more like a command. She's, she's wielding her power, her authority, in an attempt to command Joseph to sleep with her. Now, how in the world can he possibly refuse this? I mean, that's his master's wife. He really, he, he, he should obey her, or, or according to the customs, he should have obeyed her. Um, probably he would have had a good time, but he doesn't. Why doesn't he obey her? And if you think about it too, his, if he actually did obey her and, and went along with it, it would have been really good for him because he, she probably would have propelled him even more in his status and his position. But Joseph didn't even think twice about what he should do. See, he quickly resolves this conflict with his only speech in this chapter. The only thing we see him saying in chapter 39, starting in verse 8, says, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph, in an amazing display of integrity and fidelity, he refuses this cougar and gives a few reasons why. Actually, when we were kind of sitting down talking about these sermons, Pastor Joe's idea for the sermon title was Beware the Cougar. (laughs) But the three reasons that Joseph gives why he would never think about sleeping with her is one, because Potiphar trusted Joseph entirely and put everything in his charge. Joseph refused to spoil that trust. He knew he had gained that trust and earned it. He knew that God was instrumental in helping Potiphar see him in that light, and he was not going to ruin that trust. And second, Joseph recognized that to obey the wife was actually to disobey his master, to disobey Potiphar, even though Potiphar was the one who gave everything to Joseph, but the one thing he didn't give to Joseph was his own wife. And third, and most importantly, Joseph ultimately knew that to have sex with this woman would be a sin against God. That's who the offense would also ultimately truly be against, the God who is with him every step of the way, the one who caused him to prosper. But even so, Mrs. Potiphar doesn't let up. Look at verse 10. It says, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. So realize that Joseph's battle against temptation here, it wasn't just like a one-time thing. Um, You know, like we could all kind of pat him on the back for doing that one time. But this was a daily thing. Day after day, Potiphar's wife is propositioning him. And she's hoping that she's eventually going to wear Joseph out and break him down to the point where he's just going to crack and have sex with her. But he refuses. He refuses to listen to her. He refuses to get near her. And he refuses to even go in the bed with her. Now, how could a single, young, attractive man escape such enticing temptation? Because he knew the Lord was with him. 
because the Lord was with him. Joseph understood that adultery was evil. Remember, this is almost 400 years before the law of Moses, which came out and said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But scripture says God has written his moral law on the hearts of men. So Joseph knew that this was wrong. He knew that this was a sin. And he understood, though, that as long as the Lord was with him, he was fully equipped to battle any temptation that came his way. Despite Joseph's valiant efforts, though, to remain a man of integrity, Mrs. Potiphar eventually sees an opportunity and takes her chance to surprise him. Verses 11 and 12 says this, But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So one day, Joseph comes into the house, getting some work done in there. None of the other men were there in the house. And whatever the reason, we're not told uh, why there's an empty house. But Potiphar's wife is now alone with Joseph, and she now takes this opportunity to make her move. But except this time, she's not going to take no for an answer. See, she goes beyond just verbal uh, advances, and, and she makes a, a physical uh, advance. She physically grabs hold of Joseph, and she, apparently she grabs so, hold so tightly that when he goes to flee from her, he leaves his robe with her in her hands. Now, pause for a second, because what's up with this guy in his jackets? I mean, he had his tunic, his brothers ripped that off of him, and now he's got his robe, and this lady's ripping that off of him. But in the moment, see, this woman's lust is going to immediately turn into rage. And her rage results in a trumped-up accusation of rape. Look at the next couple verses. It says, And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So quickly, Potiphar's wife begins to manipulate all the facts. She begins to manipulate the entire story to make herself look like the victim. She gets her one piece of evidence, Joseph's robe. She gathers some witnesses, and then she twists the facts, and she's trying to get the sympathy of everybody she's telling this, this, this made-up story to. And she even resorts to racial slurs, trying to, to, to play on the fact uh, of the sympathy of those who already hated the Hebrews, because they were not liked by the Egyptians. They were despised by the Egyptians. And to make matters worse... She then sells this fake news to Potiphar, the one man for whom Joseph has worked so hard to gain his confidence and his trust. Look at the next few verses. It says, Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So you get the image here that, that Mrs. Potiphar was just figured, all right, well, I'm just going to lay here in bed with Joseph's robe next to me until hubby gets home. And because she, she really wants to sell this lie to her husband, so she makes sure she has you know, that piece of physical evidence, his robe. And sure enough, when he returns home, she sells him the same story she sold the others in the household. Only this time, she actually switches it up a bit for maximum effect. See, instead of referring to Joseph as a Hebrew man, 
like she did in verse 14. Now she refers to Joseph when she's talking to Potiphar as a Hebrew slave. I love the way one commentator put it. He said this. He said, to be sexually attacked by a Hebrew man is bad enough for the Egyptians. To be sexually attacked by a foreign slave makes her accusations all the more damning. In choosing this term, she's putting Joseph in as despicable a light as possible. So what's Potiphar's reaction then to all this news? Next couple verses. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were, con were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, for one, Joseph is really fortunate that Potiphar didn't execute him. Um, remember, he was like in charge of the executioners, like would not have been a big deal. Um, kind of like for them, like cutting somebody's head off was like flipping a burger at McDonald's. Like it was just no big deal. It was part of your job. And in fact, the, the, the penalty for adultery in Egypt was execution. So why isn't Joseph executed here? Well, one, I think it just goes to show the fact that the Lord is with Joseph and the Lord has some pretty great plans. And if you know how the story goes, you're, you know why. But I think, there's a, I think a second reason is that Potiphar really wasn't fully convinced his wife was telling the truth. He knew her, and I'm sure he also knew Joseph. He knew Joseph well enough to entrust his entire ownership of everything to, to that Jewish slave. But I'm pretty sure he trusted him, and he knew something was fishy. But regardless, though, Joseph does land in prison. This man can't catch a break. Right? He was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. He's likely now in his mid-20s, having spent years earning trust, gaining favor, working his way up the ladder, all to be tossed in prison for a silly little lie. See, if there ever was a time for Joseph to begin doubting God's love, if there ever was a time for Joseph to begin doubting God's faithfulness, if there ever was a time for Joseph to begin doubting the fact that God was with him, it was now. How could God allow such an unjust thing to happen? Where is God in all of this? Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. See, God was with Joseph when he flourished in his toils, when working his way up. God was with him and equipped him to fight against temptation. And now God is with him when he's falsely accused and betrayed. God is with him when he's sent to prison. In the depths of Joseph's despair, God is with Joseph and God encourages Joseph with his steadfast love. And just as Joseph found favor with Potiphar, Joseph is now finding favor with the warden of the prison. So much so that after some time in prison, the warden takes notice of the fact that Joseph is like Midas. Everything he touches turns to gold not because of him, but because of God. But the warden notices this and begins to delegate some leadership to Joseph, a prisoner. Look at the last two verses. It says, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. See, just as Joseph became the overseer of Potiphar's house, now Joseph is becoming the overseer of the prison. 
as a prisoner. That's not how these things usually work. But God's presence only and it encouraged Joseph to remain faithful to him during this, this trial, during this tribulation, and God blessed everything that Joseph touched. Remember, this was not a result of Joseph's intellect. This is not a result of his wisdom. This is not a result of any of his abilities, any of his hard work, nothing. It was God that caused him to succeed. Everything was all because the Lord was with him. That's why we read so many times here that phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. We're meant to understand here that in times of prosperity and success, God is with us. But also in times of adversity, in times of darkness, in times of despair, depression, anxiety, when everything just seems to be crushing around us, when it seems like no one cares and it seems like we're all alone, even then God is with us and he's working out his sovereign plans beyond what our eyes can possibly see. So church, are you seeing just how amazing it truly is to be a child of God who can say confidently, the Lord is with me? The message of Genesis 39 here rings loud and clear. God is always close to his children. God is always close to his children. Now, if you think God was close to Joseph, understand that he's even closer to his children now. How can I say that? Well, about 1,800 years or so after we read about this Joseph of the Old Testament, an angel Gabriel appears to another Joseph. Listen to how the Gospel of Matthew records it. This is something you usually only hear at Christmas time. Matthew chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. See, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's intent to be with his people. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Jesus is God in the flesh. So understand that if you're a follower of Christ, if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, God is with you. He's with you at all times. He protects you. He surrounds you. He's, and what's even better is that he's in you. He dwells in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. I heard one amen. amen. That's huge, church. Don't forget that. God himself takes up residence in his children when they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's huge. God is not only with you, he's in you. So what difference does this make in our lives that Jesus takes up residence in us? Well, here's a couple things real quick. Here's the first one that we see from Joseph's life is that his presence enables us to flourish in our toils. 
His presence enables us to flourish in our toil. See, Joseph toiled as a slave in Egypt, but even in his difficult labor, God enabled him to flourish. So it is with us. God's presence enables us to flourish in our labor. Wherever God has you right now, whatever job he has you doing, whatever vocation he has, whatever career he's calling you to or he's placed you in, be mindful of his presence and do your job as if God were your boss. Because he is. Do it for him, no matter how menial or or meaningless it seems. I love the way Colossians puts it. Colossians chapter 3 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Many of you know the name Martin Luther, the man who was responsible for the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Well, he was approached by a working man who wanted to know how he could serve God because he just had a regular job. He didn't feel like he could serve God. So Luther asked him, well, what are you doing now? What's your job now? And the man responded and said, I'm a cobbler. I'm, I'm a shoemaker. Much to the cobbler's surprise, Luther replied, well, then make good shoes and sell them at a fair price. That was it. See, Luther didn't tell the man to make Christian shoes. He didn't tell the man to leave his shoe business and become a missionary. The point being, you can serve God faithfully wherever he has placed you, in any vocation and in any job. You simply pursue your calling by glorifying God with your motives and glorifying God with your goals and glorifying God with the standards that you uphold at your job. And you better, you better, better remember that people are going to notice people are going to notice that the Lord is with you. I love the way one babysitter understood her calling. A lady, Linda Clare, shared these words in a a popular uh, Christian uh, women's magazine. Not that I read these often, but... (laughs) Here's what she wrote. (laughs) She she said... (laughs) Sorry. She said this, she said, my long hours working as a childcare provider often tempted me to complain about my job. Although I didn't know what work God wanted me to do, I was sure it must be something other than just babysitting. Then one day, a father who came to pick up his toddler commented and said, you taught Casey to pray. She says grace at home now, and my wife and I are thinking of attending church. And then she closed with this. She said, God's direction suddenly became clear. Now, when others ask what I do for a living, I smile and say, I just babysit for the Lord. See, she got it right. God's presence enables us to flourish in our toils. And here's the second thing we see. His presence equips us to fight against temptations. God's presence equips us to fight against temptations. See, Joseph held a very, very sacred view of sex one that has just gone missing, it seems, in our day and age. He understood that sex was meant to be the ultimate expression of physical oneness between a husband and a wife. A husband and a wife. You can't say that too much nowadays. But by the grace of God, Joseph fought that temptation. And before any of us think that what Joseph did Um, really isn't practical in today's day and age, we need to think again because there's a verse in the New Testament that kind of clues us in on on temptation. Here's what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So whatever temptations you face on a daily basis, you need to remind yourself that the Lord is with you. He is faithful. He equips you to fight against temptation and he always provides a way out. N.T. Wright Um, He's an an author and pastor. He uses the following illustration to describe how we should avoid sin and embrace the way of Jesus. He says this. He says, think of an animal you'd really be afraid of, whether it's an angry rhinoceros or a large spider. That would scare me. That's mine. If you came around a corner and found yourself facing it, what would you want to do? Run away, of course. Well, as a follower of Jesus, that's how you should feel about a lifestyle of greed, lust, jealousy, injustice, or any other sinful pattern. Then think of how you'd feel if you saw the person you loved best in the entire world, who you haven't seen for years, walking down the other street. What would you do? Why chase after him or her, of course. That's how you should behave when you think of Jesus and the new life that he is offering you and the whole world. Flee temptation, run to Jesus. God's presence enables us to flourish in our toils. His presence equips us to fight against temptations. And here's the third thing. His presence encourages us to be faithful in trials. His presence encourages us to be faithful in trials. See, when trials and difficulties come our way, it's easy to feel a sense of of defeat, of loneliness, of despair and depression. And we often wonder where God is in the midst of our troubles. But there's no reason for us to wonder any longer because we know now we can say confidently that the Lord is with us. The Lord is with me. See, God never promised an easy life for his children. He never promised that he would circumvent all of our troubles in, in our lives the moment, we, the moment we start following Christ. For some of us, it gets harder. That's just a reality. It's, it, it's not easy to be a Christ follower in today's culture. It's not. But God does promise that he'll give you all the grace you need, all the strength you need, all the peace you need to remain faithful to him in the worst difficulties in the greatest trials and tribulations that you face. I love the way Isaiah 43 says it. It says, when you pass through waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. I will be with you. So listen, don't ever doubt whether or not God is with you. If you are a follower of Christ, he is with you. He has complete control. Even though you might walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear any evil. Why? Because the Lord is with you. He's with you. He leads you. He guides you. He comforts you. And as was the case with Joseph, oftentimes God doesn't immediately remove us from a disaster. Or pull us out of that. Rather, he often does lead us straight into and through those difficult, dark, trying times. But those times develop us. He uses those times to build our character and to equip us for more faithful service, whatever he has in store for us. So they're not meant to distract you. And they're not meant to define you those times. They're meant to develop you. And you can remain faithful to God because he remains faithful to you and he encourages you with his steadfast love. Now, you might not always feel his presence, 
But we don't live our Christian lives based on feelings. We live it based on the fact of his word and his gospel. So even those days when you're not feeling it, act as if it's true because it is true. It just might, might not be true in your feelings, but it's true. So trust God, the Lord is with you. You can always feel safe and secure knowing that your heavenly father is with you and is always watching over you. John Ortberg, a name I quote often, I love his writings. He's a pastor and author. He shares uh, one surfing story to get this idea across. I love this story. Here's what he says. He says, a few weeks ago, when I was out surfing, there was no one else in the water except for a huge guy practicing martial arts on the beach. After I'd been out a little while, a tiny wisp of a kid came paddling up out of nowhere I couldn't believe he was out there by himself. He pulled his little board right up next to mine. He was so small he hardly needed a board. He could have stood up in the ocean on a frisbee. He told me his name was Shane. He asked me how long I'd been surfing. I asked him how long he'd been surfing. Seven years, he said. How old are you, I asked. Eight. (laughs) Then he said, what I like about surfing is that it's so peaceful. You meet a lot of nice people here. We talked a little while longer and then I asked him, How did you get here, Shane? Oh, my dad brought me, he said. Then he turned around and waved at the nearly empty beach. That Goliath doing martial arts waved back. Hi, son, he called out. Then, this is what he writes, he says, then I knew why Shane was so at home in the ocean. It wasn't his size, it wasn't his skill. It was who was sitting on the beach. His father was always watching and his father was very big. Shane wasn't really alone at all. Neither are we. See, at its message, at its core, that the message of the gospel is an invitation to an intimate relationship with God. It tells us that we are never alone. It tells us that God is always close to his children. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for the truth that you are always close to us. Lord, I pray that as we leave here today and as we go about our week, these upcoming days, Lord, help us to remember that truth. Lord, by your spirit, I pray that you would uh, recall to each one of our minds the reality that you are always with us, that you surround us, that you go before us, that you go behind us, that you lay your hand on us, Lord, and that you, by the person of the Holy Spirit, dwell within us. And Lord, that's something that our minds truly can't grasp, but it just causes us to worship you and to be thankful. And God, I pray that you'd help us all in our jobs, in our careers, in our studies, wherever we find ourselves God, that you would help us to to flourish in those situations as difficult, challenging as they might be or as much as we might not even want to be in those jobs or those situations. Lord, I pray, God, that you would remind each person here that they're working for you. Lord, so even the minuscule, menial, seemingly meaningless tasks are anything but Lord, so help us to remember that. And God, I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, we would all withstand temptations that come our way. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. 
Lord, I pray that this week, God, you would remind them of your perfect presence and Lord, remind them that they can flee from temptation, that they are not bound to say yes, that because of Christ, the chains and bondage of sin and death and addiction and lust and all of that has been broken. Lord, so I pray that by your spirit, you would help them to experience the freedom that is theirs, the freedom to say no to any of those temptations, whether it's sexual temptation, material temptation, personal temptation, Lord, whatever it might be. God, give us strength to say no, not by our strength, but by your strength, Lord. And I pray for anybody in here going through those trials, a season of tribulation, Lord. Help them experience the reality of your presence, your nearness, your closeness. Lord, I pray that your goodness and your mercy will follow them all the days of their lives, Lord, and that they would experience you in a very real way, Lord, that even in the pit, even in the valley, even in the prison, they can worship you. Knowing, Lord, that you are working all things for their good, for your glory, Lord, even things that we might not see, even things, seasons where we're waiting years, Lord, help us to remain faithful, Lord, not because we can do it, but because you can and because you are with us. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did on the cross. Thank you for conquering sin and death and for giving us new life as a result of your resurrection. And Lord, I pray for anybody in here who might even be thinking in these moments, God is not very close to me because I'm not his child. Lord, I pray that even in these moments or in the next, or in the next song, Lord, that the prayer of their heart would simply be, Lord Jesus, save me, for I am a sinner. I can't save myself. I need your grace. I need your mercy. Forgive me. Give me new life. Give me your resurrection life. I believe you are the Son of God who died, was buried, and conquered sin and death three days later. And I confess, Lord Jesus, that you are Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you would even make that the prayer on the lips or hearts of anybody in this room who is not one of your children, Lord, and that they would begin experiencing these moments, your near presence and your indwelling Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for loving us as your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.